Pensa que a Rana é sua. Bloodedness, it doesn't apply. They're totally wrong. This is a warm bodied creature. This thing doesn't live in a swamp. This thing's got what a 25, 27 foot neck. Brachiosaur on 30. The T-Rex is 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Wow. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. another episode of a thousand and one by one where each week we take a film out of the book a thousand and one movies you must see before you die discuss it analyze it and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book my name is adam st john and my name is ian woodington and and this week uh, as we have done we've uh, we're starting to break into more and more guests as we can especially being quarantined off into different sections of the world uh, we have another guest for you this week this week we are proud to bring you Ben Stahl Ben how are you doing Adam I'm doing as good as I can be under the circumstances and aren't we all aren't we all um for uh just for history's sake for our listeners so you can know uh ben and i went to uh college together we went to western we did a, a couple of shows i think two shows together one mostly forgettable and one i really enjoyed um i don't think it would take ben much much thought to figure out which two of those are and which ones they fit um, but, uh, Ben, how are you, you now, if you want to take just a, a couple seconds now, I know that you have sort of, uh, more recently taken on a theatrical endeavor that, um, is fairly impressive. Do you want to talk a little bit about your company? Oh, oh, thank you. Um, so a year ago, my friend, uh, Stoss Reynolds and I, um, started a company called Tall and Small Theater Productions. We're based out of Tacoma. Um, so we've been officially in operation for a year. Our first show uh, opened at the beginning of February. Uh, we did The Taming of the Shrew. Stoss directed it. I was in the middle of directing Much to Do About Nothing. Um, and then this little pandemic kind of broke out and we're kind of on hiatus with that. Um, but I'm trying to keep, um, we're all trying to keep everyone engaged on our Facebook group. I've got a playwriting thing going on there trying to do some live stuff. So we're just trying to keep art alive right now in Tacoma, just like every other company out there just in this country right now. 
Well, that's that's a good point. And uh, and I and and you know as 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 any as as having worked with a lot of smaller companies, I understand how complicated and hard this could be. But I, I obviously wish you the best of luck, and um, obviously a lot of Shakespeare stuff, and that's I'm a big fan of that. Um, so great, great. So a little little shout out there for Tall and Small. That's fantastic. Um, so before we get to today's episode, this was a poll episode. Um, we pitted Spielberg's summer blockbusters up against each other. We put Jaws up against Jurassic Park, and and I gotta say, slightly overwhelmingly, Jurassic Park took it. For this episode, Ian, I know I know it didn't go the way that you would have chosen. Oh, I'm happy to talk about either Jaws or <laughs> Jurassic Park, though it looks like about two-thirds of the vote went to Jurassic Park, which is fine. Whoever voted, I forgive you. <laughs> Great. So, but, but before, before we get to Jurassic Park, uh, as we always do, we will bring you some recommendations for the week. Ben, as our guest, we would love it if you would go first. So what do you got for us? Uh, so my recommendation for the week, um, <clears throat> we'll go about it in a little bit of a roundabout way. So one of the movies that's been uh, everyone's been talking about the past couple months is Knives Out. Um, and everyone's talking about Daniel Craig and how it's great to see him do a non-James Bond movie playing a fun character with a ridiculous accent. So uh, I'm recommending for everyone who loves Daniel Craig and Knives Out, um, go watch Logan Lucky directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's, you know, plot-wise, not too far off from what you've seen in the Ocean's Eleven movies, just without all the all the style and the tech. And, oh, and there was a cat. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Daniel Craig's in that one, along with Channing Tatum and Adam Driver, who puts in a really good comedic performance there in between Star Wars movies and Marriage Story. If you're used to him just being angry all the time, watch Logan Lucky. Um, and it's just a really cute movie. I think it's uh, I think it's more approachable than the Oceans movie just because your main character is doing what he does, not because he's you know a traditional criminal, but because he gets laid off from his job uh, because of an injury he sustained. And he just needs to find a way to get money, you know. So it's not like he's trying to rob a casino of hundreds of millions of dollars. He's just trying to, you know, he's just trying to get the money he thinks he needs. So yeah, Logan Lucky. Um, I I don't I don't think it was a recommend of mine, but I know I know that Logan Lucky has been discussed on the show. I know that I enjoyed it. I don't believe Ian was a huge fan of Logan Lucky. Am I or am I misremembering that? I just think that somebody needs to tell Daniel Craig to stop doing that accent. <laughs> Other than that, oh, I mean, man. it's it was a ton of fun. Yeah, it really, it really. I mean, it's it's good. It's it's non. Uh, how do I? It's non weird Soderbergh. So it really does fit that like. You know, and even though these are kind of backwoods kind of characters in a way, they're everybody still feels kind of cool in their own way. Um, and and I think Soderbergh has a real good knack for directing cool movies. Um, and so, and yeah. bringing up Adam Driver is a uh, is a good point because he's probably the best thing in it. Remind me, doesn't he? He's missing a hand or missing an arm in that. Y- yep. Yeah. Yeah. Does some well, really great. good uh, uh, physical comedy in that. Yeah, and uh, I and I don't remember, uh, but last time I checked, Logan Lucky was on Prime. I'm not sure if it moved off of that, um, but. Uh, uh, I think it might be, and that's great. And that's and so as and as we're stuck inside, you know, if you have a Prime membership, you can just find it, and it's a part of what you're already paying for. So I think that's a great recommendation. Um, 
Ian, I have no idea how closely yours ties into Jurassic Park. Mine doesn't at all. I don't know if you want to Oh, go you, should, you should probably go first then. Perfect, perfect. Um, so I was real close to uh, doing Edge of Darkness as my recommend, which I saw for the first time about a week ago. Um, Martin Campbell directed Mel Gibson-led movie that I actually fa- found um, pretty captivating. But we, we were looking for a movie to watch last night. And um, I, I got to say, if you're just looking for something that's got action in it and that keeps the story moving forward and that I can't, I can't believe I found oddly compelling. We watched shooter last night. Um, the Antoine Fuqua, Mark Wahlberg film. Um, and, uh, I gotta, I, I gotta say, I, I, it's not great. It's not a great movie. It was a perfect, have a bottle of wine and just the kids are out like kind of shut off the brain, but enough, enough happened to, to keep me interested. Basically, um, Mark Wahlberg plays a guy whose name, and I should have known right off the bat what I was getting in for, because his character's name is Bob Lee Swagger, and uh, he is a uh, sniper. I don't, I don't know if it actually says what branch of the um, the armed forces he works for, but he um, he is a, a, he's a great sniper, and he he's on a mission, and he's basically left for dead. He finds his way back, and he gets brought in. He basically uh, Danny Glover comes in. He he's like an old lieutenant colonel guy who's trying to get him to they basically they they hire him to if you were going to assassinate the president how would you do it because there's been a threat made on his life they end up framing him for the assassination attempt that happens and it, the movie is basically him trying to uh prove that he was innocent um there's some uh, supporting performances uh, Eli- uh Elias Cotias who we've mentioned fairly recently on our um uh Fincher episodes and uh, Michael Pena's in it. Kate Mara's in it. Um, God, there's probably more people I'm just kind of blank. Oh, uh, Ned Beatty is a corrupt senator. So you get Ned Beatty in it, too. That's fun. Um, I'm not going to lie. This is not a thinker. But it was a great, like, enjoy the action. Enjoy the the drama for what it is. And, and watch Mark Wahlberg do the one thing that he does now, which is just play the hero. So there you go. That's my recommendation. Shooter. Have either of you two seen Shooter? <laughs> I have not. I I think I reviewed it when I was working at the video store back in whenever that came out, oh six or oh seven. It was oh seven, yeah, yeah. Not not a fan. Not a fan if I can uh, tell. Well, <laughs> I, man, I can't even remember. I I think I think I had problems with the ending, but beyond that, I have no memory of it. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Um, so there you go. That's my that's my, you know, it's not a solid recommend, but. It's a if you're gonna have some wine, I think it's a good one. Um, so Ian, why don't you why don't you take us home and, and maybe bring us closer to what we're gonna be talking about today? <laughs> so I think at this point, it's sort of generally accepted that Duel was Steven Spielberg's first film, even though it was a made-for-television uh, movie back in '71 or '72, whenever that was. Uh, it was later expanded uh, for a European release, and they added like 12 or 15 minutes to it. But his actual first theatrical film was 1974's Sugarland Express, which is my recommend to pair with Jurassic Park. So um, I think uh, I think Terrence Malick sort of beat him to the punch a little bit with Badlands as far as that sort of southern fried uh, couple-on-the-run story goes. But Sugarland Express has a lot going for it as well. So we have uh, Goldie Hawn as Lou Jean and uh, William Atherton as her husband Clovis. Uh, people will remember William Atherton if you're a big fan of 80s movies from stuff like Die Hard and Ghostbusters. Uh, she breaks him out of prison. He's in pre-release 
Uh, he's leaving, he, he's getting out in about four months, but uh, she has been deemed an unfit mother and their child, little baby Langston, who's actually uh, played by Harrison Zanuck, who is Daryl F. Zanuck, the producer's, it's his grandson. Uh, so they bust out of prison to try and get little baby Langston back, and in the process they end up uh, inadvertently taking uh, a state patrolman played by Michael Sachs hostage, and they're being pursued by Captain Tanner, who's played by Ben Johnson, across uh, Texas to get to Sugarland. Uh, the name is a little bit of a mis- uh, misnomer, as it's not really an express chase. It is kind of middling, and some of the pacing could do with a little bit of work. I mean, it, it's currently about an hour and 50 minutes. I think you could get it down to 90 pretty easy, but it's still still got a lot going for it, and you could, I, you know how I feel about first features and, and looking back at them in retrospect and trying to see all the little bits and pieces that would later make a filmmaker iconic, and I think this film is chock full of that. It is very impressive for a first feature. Yeah, I I uh, I know of it. It is is something I want to see, but I I can't say that I've seen it. I and I can't even say I, I really knew that much about it. Um, ben, have you seen that? No, I can't say that I have. Yeah, I'm not a huge Goldie Hawn fan, but she really shines in this. She's got a lot of work to do and really carries this movie well between both herself and William Atherton. Well, awesome. I, that's uh, I think that's a. Uh, perfect way to segue into talking about Jurassic Park. So there we go. We've got Logan Lucky, Shooter, and Sugarland Express. Those are the three recommendations that we're bringing this week. And now it's time to dive into the film that you, the audience, picked. And we are talking about 1993's Jurassic Park, directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh, before I even take one step forward, forward, we have to uh, just give credit where credit is due and point out the fact that he was... Um, supervising the post and visual effects while uh, in Poland doing Schindler's List. Uh, that's just, I mean, as, as, as two movie film years ago, that's, that's pretty impressive. And he, he didn't learn anything from it, apparently, because in 97 he would do the same thing again, directing the sequel and Amistad, obviously very famously doing it again in 2002 with Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report. Um, oh, five? He's done it a couple more times. Oh five, he did it with War of the Worlds in Munich, and then twenty eleven was it War Horse and Tintin? Yeah, I can't say I've seen Tintin, but yeah, yeah, that, that sounds right. So he's uh, he's able to compartmentalize more than I ever could. Yeah, fair, fair. Um, the screenplay is written by Michael Crichton, based off of his book, and uh, David Kep. Um, David Kep helped sort of pare down the the more lengthy and analytical parts of the book into um, a bit a, a bit more digestible. I, I think we can thank him or not uh, for the Mr. DNA sequence, able to get a lot of the science in in a very short amount of time. Um, let's launch into our cast, who I love. Um, uh, we have Sam Neill playing Dr. Alan Grant, Laura Dern as Dr. Ellie Sattler, Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, we have uh, Richard Attenborough, Sir Richard Attenborough, um, uh, playing John Hammond, who is Park It Is, uh, Bob Peck as Robert Muldoon, uh, Martin Ferrero as uh, Donald Gennaro, or the guy who gets eaten by the T-Rex. Um, we have Samuel L. Jackson as Ray Arnold, Wayne Knight as Dennis Nedry, and then I have uh, Joseph Mazzello as Timmy and Ariana Richards as Lex. If I left anybody out you feel like should get a shout-out, please feel free and say it now. Uh, I'm going to shout-out uh, B.D. Wong as Dr. Wu, only because he will appear in future films. 
Good point. Good point. I like that. And then I also have a character actor that I really like, uh, Miguel Sandoval, who pops up in uh, one of my favorite Harrison Ford films, uh, Clear and Present Danger. Is is he is he, he who is talking to uh, uh, Gennaro at the beginning? Yeah, he's he's the miner at the, okay, the amber mine. Okay. He he ha- yeah he's definitely got a familiar face. I couldn't have told you what his name is. Nice, that, that's a good <laughs> shout out. I I like that. Um, So, uh, Steven Spielberg, hey, believe it or not, he's got a few films in the book. We've covered one already when we we talked about E.T. Other films of his in the book are Jaws, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Color Purple, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, and Lincoln, Um, which which will be uh, great because this is the start of our little mini Spielberg discussion. Next week, we're going to talk about the one decade of his that isn't in the book, uh, the aughts, and uh, we'll discuss that more next week, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Moving along to accolades. Now, (sighs) here's the thing. So if it comes to sound or sound effects or sound editing or visual effects, it pretty much won all of those anywhere. So at the Academy Awards, it won Best Sound, Best Sound Editing, and Best Visual Effects. At the BAFTAs, it won Best Sound, Best Special Effects, and Most Popular Film. I, I mean, uh, Ian, you have some um, Saturn Award wins, I believe. Well, I don't, I don't want to be combative, but it did lose sound uh, at the BAFTAs to The Fugitive, which is a film you talked about a couple of weeks ago. Oh, um, I, oh, shit. Uh, I did want to highlight at the uh, at the Grammys, it was nominated for uh, a Best Instrumental TV or Film Album, which it lost to Aladdin. Yeah, and uh, Dennis, with this film, Dennis Murin uh, entered the Guinness Book of World Records for the most Oscars won for visual effects. He had six wins between 1983 and 94, and he had also won Special Achievement Oscars back-to-back in 81, 82, and then again in 84. Well, hot damn. I guess when you needed it, you go to that guy. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was quite recently in 2018. Indeed, indeed, and I'm not not surprised by that at all. It seems like something that, uh, as impactful as it was, would um, would make it into the book. Uh, uh, ben, I see you looking at notes. Is there anything that you wanted to throw out there? I'm not looking at notes. I'm looking at my stupid cat who is trying to swat stuff at my feet. Sorry. Oh, your cat's not stupid. You don't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, Ian, do you have any box office information? Because I'm, 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 I want to say that this did pretty, I don't know, pretty well. Pretty well. Well, on a, on a budget of $63 million in its initial release worldwide, it did $912.6 million, besting uh, Spielberg's original uh, top-of-the-charts film, E.T. And uh, after a couple of re-releases in 2011, 2013, and 2018, it crossed the $1 billion mark. And if we're looking at this film as a franchise as a whole, this franchise is currently worth $5 billion, according to the box office. Yeah, that's... Uh, well, A, that that's quite a bit. Um, and, and B, uh, some of those... I, do we want to spend any time talking about the sequels? Because uh, I don't... I don't have much to say, if anything, nice about most of them. Well, the last one damn near put me to sleep. 
Uh, I can't I think that that's something we can all agree on. Um, and I think most of our, our listeners will agree on, too, is that none of the sequels measure up to the original. I mean, Lost World isn't bad, but I also have no, no interest in in revisiting it. But the third one and both Chris... Actually, I have not seen the newest one. I saw the first one with Chris Pratt, I and that was not reason enough for me to see... Was it called Fallen Kingdom? I don't... I'm not interested. Um, <laughs> just as a side note, um, I actually saw Fallen Kingdom in the theater with uh, with our friend Zach Jennison. Uh-huh. And we, both came, we both came out of it actually enjoying it, but I think that's because we set our expectations ludicrously low. Uh-huh. Um, I think, I think though, it is a film that uh, gets better as you watch it. Like, it starts bad, and then the last probably half hour where they actually decide to go into a more of a horror style with dinosaurs um, stalking people inside a giant mansion was much more entertaining than Dinosaurs on the Island, which we've seen a lot. That's true. That is true. Um, Ian, I'm wondering if we have the same number here. Uh, currently, I have on the IMDb 250 that it is at 168. Oh, I have it as 166. Oh, snap. Well, there you go. I'll, we'll go with that, that one. That sounds better. That puts it between Gone with the Wind and Blade Runner. Man, it's so weird. Those movies do not... I know, I know, that's a weird pairing. That's a weird <laughs> mix of movies there. <laughs> um... And uh, I have it right now uh, on Rotten Tomatoes score. It has a 91, both critical and audience score. Um, so, hey, a lot of people like this movie. Um, I pulled Ebert's review. Not because it was easy to find, but because there's some stuff in there I really disagree with. Uh, Ian, did, did, did you pull his or anybody else's? No, I have I have Ebert's three-star review as well. Yeah. Um, so, I... Okay, I... I Okay, I'll just I'll, I'll read I'll read part of this because I just I just got to put it out there. So this is how it starts. When young Steven Spielberg was first offered the screenplay for Jaws, he said he would direct the movie on one condition that he didn't have to show the shark for the first hour. By slowly building the audience's apprehension, he felt the shark would be much more impressive when it finally arrived. He was right. I wish he had remembered that lesson when he was preparing Jurassic Park, his new thriller set in a remote island theme park where real dinosaurs have been grown from long, dormant DNA molecules. The movie delivers all too well on its promise to show us dinosaurs. We see them early and often, and they are indeed a triumph of special effects artistry. But the movie is lacking other qualities that needs it even more, such as a sense of awe and wonderment and strong human story values. Uh... That I mean, maybe that's just a good way to get into the movie, because um, I, I disagree with uh, the the last bit of it. I think there are a lot of um, human values, and uh, I I think that there's a lot of great story going on between the characters. But that's just me. Uh, thoughts, Ben, Ian. Um, I would absolutely agree. I just rewatched it last night, and a moment that stuck out to me that I think is fitting in any time of crisis is when Ellie and John are sitting at the table talking about the flea circus and um, how Ellie, you know, did not respect the power of Jurassic Park and now it's gone. And now all that matters is that everyone's out there and that people are dying. Like that's kind of how I, I thought, Oh my God, that's, that's basically where we're at right now. It's like, uh, I'm I'm in that boat where it's like, well, you know, kind of screw the economy. I want people to be home and safe and not dying anymore. 
So, yeah, absolutely. Jurassic Park is completely filled with human values. Ian, that's thoughts? good. I'm glad you brought it. I'm glad you brought up that scene because that's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I think one of the most powerful and poignant. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, and and I I'm, I mean yeah, I kind of feel like that one because it, it's a moment where we, we we step away from the action, we step away from the dinosaurs, and we step away from the chaos to really kind of have a moment like that. But it's funny because I feel like even early on. I mean, maybe there's a lot of setup for when we're going to see the change, but even just looking at, at Alan Grant, who clearly is not a guy who wants to be around kids all that often, like he ultimately learns what it is to care for other people. I mean, he seems fairly stuck in his ways and, and obviously cares a great deal for, for Ellie. But, you know, by the end of this movie, he has forged a real bond with these kids. And I think that's just another way of showing that there's a lot of there's a lot of interpersonal human things going on there. Um, so I just wanted to, I, I, I really didn't like Ebert's review and I get that he gave it three stars, which isn't anything to shit on, but I just, I really, I just, I disagree with him. I disagree with old Raj on that one. Um, well, I think, I think the one thing in his review that does really stand out to me is him calling out that the film in a sense does blow its wad a little early. That is the one thing I do agree with. I feel like there could have been a little bit more restraint a la Jaws uh, where the, the dinosaurs, we, we built them a little bit. Yeah, the film is really about them and about uh, John Hammond's uh, folly. But uh, after years and years of having seen it, I think that yeah, a little bit of restraint wouldn't have hurt. That's I find that interesting because I, I really, I disagree. And I think... That I think the best reason I, I can explain why I disagree with that is that so um, we watched this with um, our oldest, with Stella. Uh, she's five, and, and we thought, you know what? There might be some moments where she maybe she couldn't handle it, but I felt like this was actually something that she would totally get, and she really liked it. And it's so funny because when that moment comes and they, they, they're stopped in the Jeep and Alan Grant looks over and you can see that he's seeing something and he turns Ellie's head and they both end up seeing um, the the di- what what dinosaur is that for the first time? It's not it's not the um, it's a brachiosaurus, oh, right? Is is the brachiosaurus there? okay? Um, when when that happens and the score's there and every like I honestly got goosebumps and it wasn't just because of the score and because I kind of knew it was coming, but watching Stella see it. Um, it 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 and maybe it's, it's definitely a personal reason for me to get that she. She's seeing this for the first time, but unlike Jaws, which I feel like is meant to be more of a thriller, and, and ah shit, I don't, how, how, I want to walk this tightrope as, as as neatly as I can. Um, I do think that that Jurassic Park, in a weird way, is a family movie. I don't think that Jaws is. Um, and there's something about you, you have to show the dinosaurs early because this is something that you would take your kids to see and. They're not going to have the patience to wait. Now, I could see maybe being a bit older and being like, uh, you could have had a little more restraint, you know, wait for a better moment to show it. But I don't know. For me, we hit all the dinosaur talk. Where we've got this great. I think the dialogue is really uh, is really well written. And then we finally get to that moment where we see them. And it was I do think it's it's in, in, in the literal way. It's awesome. I just it's full of wonder. And I I myself really enjoyed that moment. 
Now, my my postscript to the idea of having restraint is I ask myself, how much do I care? And I get swept up on a wave of nostalgia. And when that big rising John Williams music happens and we see the Brachiosaurus for the first time, how much do I care? I don't know that I care that much. I've also, uh, this was the first film that I ever saw in theaters, and I guess his st- cell is about five, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, so I, my dad took me to this in 1993, I was five, and he will tell this story to anyone that'll give him a couple minutes of, of their time, is that I was doing fine, I was sat in the seat, and I was enjoying it, loving every minute of it, and then when the T-Rex thing happened, I moved to my arm my armrest, to his lap, to his armrest, and then I bolted out. um uh, yeah okay uh so i mean it seems weird to want to describe this movie and i'm going to do it in the quickest way possible because it's not there's not much to explain um john hammond is a rich guy who has bought an island and through uh dna that we've extracted from an old mosquito he was able to recreate all of these dinosaurs and uh, in order for the park to open, he has to get the um, the AOK from from experts in the field, which is why we get Alan and Ellie and Ian Malcolm, who is Jeff Goldblum, uh, out to the park to basically give it the oh yeah, your park is fine. Uh, shit goes wrong real quick. Um, part of that has to do with Wayne Knight trying to um, take the like the embryos, the DNA, and he's going to sell them to like a rival competitor. And because of that, the park starts to malfunction, and dinosaurs are on the loose. And uh, and there's a lot of tension and dinosaur chases and things like that. Uh, but ultimately, everybody gets away except for um, the lawyer and Sam Jackson and, and Wayne Knight. But, you know, the people that we really care about, they they get away. They get away. I guess uh, Muldoon dies, too. That's that's unfortunate. But um, so great. So uh, where do you I don't I don't care. Where do we start? This movie's. I, yeah. Where, 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 where do we want to talk about? Well, I mean, um, the first thing that pops to my mind is uh, when I was watching it last night. I was surprised uh, how well the visual effects hold up. Um, I watched it in 4K, and I can definitely tell that it is still um, early 90s CG effects. But uh, comparing it to films that I would watch, say, on the Sci-Fi Channel, some of those their original terrible films, um, I think it has everything to do with um, the fact that they took the time to actually record real animals real mo like real animals moving around and out in the wild um so that the movement of the dinosaurs still looks incredibly fluid compared to what you might see from a really cheap um effects movie um yes the textures of the dinosaurs have gotten a lot better over the years and some of the green screen effects have gotten a little bit better over the years but i mean honestly um yeah the, the fact is i still look at that and it's like i'm still like wow they they made you know um this film raised the bar for uh, dinosaurs in films, I think for the first time since King Kong in 1933. Um, because between King Kong and this, all you had were people um, taping fins to the back of lizards. Or, uh, or Godzilla, which really doesn't count as a dinosaur film. So, you know, it took a solid 60 years to really finally get a, a better dinosaur movie than King Kong. And I don't think uh, a better dinosaur movie has been made since. So, and that's what twenty-seven years now. So, yeah, wait, wait, wait to keep that bar raised. And I think a lot of that credit has to go to the the stop motion guys as well. I mean, I know they Phil Tippett was among the guys that got a 
uh, an Academy Award, but ha- them having the foresight once they decided to abandon the stop motion and move to full CGI, them keeping the the stop motion guys on board so that they could inform how the CGI would work was a, a stroke of genius on their part, I think, to have those two worlds and sort of bridge the gap between them. Yeah, and I just want to add on to that because, yes, to all of that. Um, but also, I I miss, I really do miss when, when movies would actually, like, the giant, the real giant T-Rex. The, 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 I, I think for me, the, it's not, I wouldn't call it an effect, but the, 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 the best practical item made for the film that they shot was the, um, the Triceratops. That they actually, uh, that's sick, and that Alan kind of leans on as it's breathing, and... It, I think for me that moment was it, it's so it's so weird. It's not because uh, that the, the it wasn't because the triceratops or, yeah it was it wasn't that it was sick, but it was more that I could see this thing breathing. I, I could see them. For me, that was more. I, I teared up a little bit in that moment, even though it's not as it's not as awestruck as when we see the first dinosaur. But the fact that he gets to like lay on it and touch it, and they're they're no longer a thing that they're seeing in the distance. It's something that's it's tactile and. He can feel it. I think because he can feel it, it feels like we can feel it. And it, that moment in particular for me was such a, a visceral experience because I, I really truly felt like these things are fucking real. And I, I think it was also a great decision to have practical dinosaurs with CG because even though there are moments where it is clearly CG, it's almost built up an air of authenticity with having the real dinosaurs in there. Or that that's that's how I felt about those. Oh, I agree. Anytime you can get uh, practical effects in the movies, <laughs> believable practical effects, I would take that over CG in a heartbeat if it were possible. So we usually we usually save the unsung heroes for later in the episode, but this that that Part of the conversation leads me to to want to jump into that right away. Is Spielberg himself has called the unsung heroes of this film the puppeteers, and I was I'm sort gonna, of inclined to agree with him. But I, I was going to. There's pull, almost pull, too many unsung heroes to choose. You've got David Coep who came in and tightened up the script and gave some great characterization, some great character beats. Um, Attenborough, I think, makes a great case for an unsung hero as well. Because for me, on this go round, it really felt like it was his film. You know, we're 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 drawn into his hubris and seeing just how far he will sink and how much he will risk in this folly. Uh, he's he plays this sort of mad scientist that we don't really acknowledge is a mad scientist necessarily. And sure. then um, yeah. Jack Horner as well, who was their paleontologist uh, consultant, who uh, who really did a lot to help them back up some of the theories that they had, especially with the raptors being. Uh, you know, potentially having had feathers rather than scales, but uh, yeah, I gotta. I think I gotta agree with Spielberg that it's it's the puppeteers who really sell this thing. Yeah, we're jumping in a bit early. Uh, ben, do you have an unsung hero? Uh, no, I would definitely say I would agree with the puppeteers. Um, like honestly, some of my favorite moments are just like the shot, the close-up shots of the Velociraptors eyes where you actually get to see the irises moving and you're just like oh god you know it's like it's stalking me right now yeah yeah um the puppeteers was one i was going to pay uh call out to because spielberg actually used the 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 phrase unsung hero um the other one and and this might seem weird but 
I, I think if, I, if I'm going to go with a single person and not just the puppeteers, I want to say the unsung hero of this movie is Sam Neill. Now, I get that he is, in a way, the lead of the movie, but I feel like it's it's the other performances that get like I think it, I think Attenborough over time and and uh, Jeff Goldblum because he's Jeff Goldblum um, and even like you know Sam Jackson and Wayne Knight like Sam Jackson gets a few of the like most iconic lines in the movie actually but there's such a I don't know there's such an earnestness and a, a, a like an honesty to Sam Neill's alan grant that i i really like and i i wonder if we want to talk just for a split second a split second about what this movie would have been had it either been uh william hurt or harrison ford in that role i i well i think harrison ford is great in showing the foresight he acknowledged that he wasn't right for this role and even after having seen it went on to say because we we talked a lot about actors who have turned down roles uh, obviously a very famous one where we were talking about uh, the matrix was will smith turning down neo mm-hmm. and of course he he thinks that's the the biggest regret of his career and harrison ford doesn't feel that regret he knows that he was wrong for the role now as far as william hurt goes i i think we've got a movie you know it's even even better with william i'm just a, a sucker for his stuff as much as i love sam neill william hurt would have knocked this thing out of the park Pardon the pun. <laughs> oh, Ian. Uh, uh, ben, any thoughts there? Um, I, I would have to say that yeah, it, it is Sam Neill. Like, I cannot imagine anyone else in the role. Um, I didn't even know about Harrison Ford, and I completely agree that that Ford just, you know, in the early 90s, just would not have been right for the role. I don't know. Maybe now, if Sam Neil Neil were to retire and they had to bring in someone to play an older Alan Grant, but like for the time for '93, Sam Neil is literally just the perfect Alan Grant. Well, and I think part of it too uh, is that I, I mean Harrison Ford it, it, and working with with Spielberg again in this way just would have. I mean, I, I I mean I don't I don't that he needed to do it, and I'm glad I'm glad he chose not to. Um, and with and I, there's just something about Sam Neil. I think he plays. Um, kind of a dork better than maybe Hurt would have. Hurt's a little too tall, statuesque. He's he's very poised, and I'm sure he could have done done something with a role that very terrific, but I think Sam Neill kind of plays just uh, a dork who likes dinosaurs really well. I mean, he's not trying to do too much. I don't look at him and think, you know, this guy's going to be the hero of the movie, um, and he certainly turns out to be one. And I don't know. I, I Yeah, I really, I think he... You know, and he's been in a lot of things, but I, I think if you're going to think of Sam Neill, I got to say this probably comes to mind. Probably, I mean, uh, for me, it's the first thing that would come to mind. Pick a Sam Neill movie. Oh, Jurassic Park. I mean, I get that he's been in other things, but no. Well, he had a great year as well. I mean, for for me, when you think of Sam Neill, it's this and the piano. I wasn't. Yeah, I was gonna say that was this was a good year for Sam Neill releases. Um, but the uh, the other the other person that turned it down was Kurt Russell. How do we feel about Kurt Russell potentially playing Alan Grant? No, because I think see, I think if it's Kurt Russell, it's instantly like okay. So I don't, I don't need to know anything else about this movie. Kurt Russell's gonna save the day, and there are moments with with Sam Neill where it's like, and even though I've seen this, you know, I don't know how many times, there are moments where it feels like he knows a lot about dinosaurs, but 
how is he going to actually like when they're climbing down the tree or when they're getting over the fence? There are moments where it's like I don't I don't know that he actually has this under control. I think he's doing the best he can, and that's what I like about his performance in the movie. Kurt Russell would be like, no, he's got this. Even if shit goes wrong, Kurt Russell's still going to take care of this. Well, I think it's I think it's a funnier movie with Kurt Russell, but yeah, no, you're you're right. You're kind of circling the idea that Sam Neill has uh, an everyman quality. Yeah, yeah. That that Kurt Russell and Harrison Ford just don't have because of the the sort of movie star stature that they have. Yeah. Um, when I picture Kurt Russell in Jurassic Park, I just picture Alan Grant mowing down raptors with an Uzi. So no, <laughs> we don't need that. Well, and then, and then speaking of other other potential movies, this could have been. Um, I, I thought this was interesting too of of the companies and people fighting to get the movie. So we had uh, Warner Brothers and Tim Burton vying for it. We had Columbia Pictures and Richard Donner fighting for it, and twentieth twentieth Century Fox and Joe Dante uh, fighting for it. And obviously, it ended up going with um, uh, with Spielberg there. But I was wondering. I mean. <laughs> I like the of all of those. I'm I'm so glad Tim Burton did not get his hands on this movie. That is a that is a fate that we were thankfully saved from because a Tim Burton <laughs> Jurassic Park would be, oh man, it would make Alice in Wonderland look inspired. <laughs> I think uh, yeah, Tim Burton Jurassic Park would have been. Um, every character would have been Ian Malcolm, <laughs> and. We only need one. Sorry, Tim. We only need one weird character. Well, and he he would go on to to fuck up his own franchise with when he got that when he got his hands on that Planet of the Apes. Man, if I never have to see that along again as long as I live, I'll be happy. I can I can thankfully say I've never seen that. Oh, you you dodged a bullet, my friend. I mean, I've seen some real real shitty films, but I have not seen that one. <laughs> Now, now the one person that was also vying for it that we didn't mention in the the other version in whatever alternate universe that happened in the one that I'd be fascinated in seeing would be uh, James Cameron's version, and he had planned oh. to have uh, Schwarzenegger as Grant, Bill Ooh. Paxton as Malcolm, and uh, Charlton Heston as John Hammond. <laughs> I'm not saying it would be a good movie, but I think it would be a fascinating watch. I I won't do a Schwarzenegger oh impression because I can't. But if you can imagine him trying to look in awe at those CG dinosaurs, that would be that would be something. <laughs> Holy shit! I don't I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to imagine that. Um. So I wonder because you know I, I'm looking at my recorder here. We're about we're about forty minutes in, and we we've, we've talked about a lot of different things, which is great. So I was wondering though. Maybe because this might lead to other moments that we haven't talked about yet. And I so I kind of mentioned Sam Neill. I was wondering if we just want to talk about some of the other uh, performers in this movie. Um, so I, I figure let's because we haven't really talked about him yet. Let's I want to throw out Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm. Um, how do we feel about him in this movie? What are moments that stand out with him in this movie? And when doesn't Jeff Goldblum stand out when he's on screen in this movie? Um, there, there's a reason that he's become a meme, you know, in this internet generation, you know, shirtless Jeff Goldblum is just, it's, you can't get away from it. Um, from the, from the very moment you meet him, that ridiculous laugh he, he has in the helicopter is like, Oh my God. 
Um, this guy's going to steal almost every scene he's in. Um, and I, you know, I'm going to segue just for a second into the second movie. Um, I'm it was one of the disappointing things to me about the second movie was his character works in small doses. It's great when he steals a few scenes, um, but you can't give that guy his own movie. <laughs> he stopped being interesting when he, you know, became the lead. So, uh, you know, and not, that's not his fault. That's, that's the script for the second film. Um, but, you know, you, you give the audience just the right dose of Jeff Goldblum and they're going to walk away loving it every time. Oh, that's, that's a really apt point because I have tried watching that Disney Plus show, The World According to Jeff Goldblum, and it's, it's too much. I've watched one episode, got halfway through another, and went, I, I can't. I cannot handle this much Goldblum. And I think it's like, I think, uh, Wes Anderson has, has found a good way to use him. Like he's only in a couple of scenes in the movies that he's in with him. And it's, it's the right amount. It is the, the perfect nugget of Jeff Goldblum. Um, Oh, he's amazing in life aquatic. Both him and Willem Dafoe just knock me for six every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny that the shirtless shirtless Ian Malcolm thing, I, 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 it's become such a meme that I forgot kind of when it happens in the movie and I've realized that in that scene where they're sort of plotting how they're going to like turn up back on the power and stuff, the cuts to him happen for no, he doesn't say anything. It's just, it's just Jeff Goldblum shirtless looking concerned. It serves, it serves no purpose to the movie whatsoever, except for to show him trying to look as cool as possible. I, I found that th- and uh, very very likely high on morphine. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think we have to assume that a lot of that is Jeff Goldblum's invention. He uh, he fought to get himself back into the script. I mean, Spielberg had pitched it to him, but he said, "Well, don't get your hopes up because they're trying to combine the Malcolm and the Grant character." And he was able to to fight his way back into the film. And then he came up with the idea to have a much more uh, heroic encounter with the T Rex because originally he was just going to bugger off with the lawyer. Uh, so I have to wonder how much of that is Jeff. Hey, hey, Steve, is this is this a good opportunity for me to take my shirt off? <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny too because there are um, there are times where his the lines that he gets are kind of like just dumb jokes, like when they first get to the park, and I think it's Alan Grant that says we're out of a job, and he goes, "Don't you mean extinct?" And it's like, oh, okay, ha ha ha, that's good. But then there are times where he gets to say something as obvious as that is one big pile of shit. And every time it doesn't matter when I watch that, when I watch this movie, every time I hear that line, I laugh, I just find his, it's his delivery and just obviousness just to say it. It makes, just makes me laugh every time. Well, he also gets, to be honest, between him and Hammond, they get the best dialogue in the movie. I love the repeated, uh, I spared no expense. I think Hammond says that about five or six times in the movie, but, and it's not the life finds a way line, but it's a little, it's in that same conversation where he says you were so concerned with the fact that you could, you didn't stop to consider whether you should. I mean, that is that sums up the movie perfectly. That's the movie in one line. That is, that's the franchise in one line because. But yeah, that's that's good. Yeah. The problem with the sequels is that they can't get away from that exact same theme. Um, and I mean, and again, talking about internet culture and meme culture that line is basically what you know we use every day now when we find a cereal that's made out of Hershey's bars you know like something completely ridiculous that 
who who thought that people would want to consume this at all. That that speech of his, I, I mean, it, it would have taken too much time to write to write it all down. But I mean, you know, you're 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 wielding this genetic power like a kid who found his dad's gun. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. Um, what you call discovery, I call the rape of the natural world. I mean, he is just, and it's funny because we've only seen him be kind of slick and cool and blatantly hitting on Laura Dern up until this point, and then he gets to this drop this uh, this this like epic like mic dropping speech that it kind of comes out of nowhere but you can tell that it's funny because at that part we don't we don't really know how smart we don't really know who he is or what he's bringing to the table and when he brings in that when he drops that speech it's just like the movie stops and it's like Jeff Goldblum do what you want and and you're 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 owning it which is I, I think it's why it's I'm so glad he was in the movie I'm glad he fought for that part and he got to keep it because that scene alone is fucking fantastic and unless we're ready to move on from Jeff Goldblum, I, I love also considering uh, another movie that I'm very excited to talk about that's in the book is is Cronenberg's remake of The Fly. You could almost look at Ian Malcolm as the B-side to that. You know, the, the character in that is the A-side, and then this is the B-side. It's almost the, the two, sort of the split of the same character. Yeah, that's, that's I think that's an interesting point to bring up. Um, So without uh, any... Uh any other uh, chat about him, we can move on to maybe maybe Laura Dern as Ellie Sattler. Again, another great case for unsung hero. She has got... Um, I, I think we've also talked in in episodes that we've done a thankless role, and I think she's a great candidate for that. Yeah. And again, I think it's the way that she... It's it's one of those things where, and I, I'll make this a little, maybe a personal for a second. I tend to think that people like me more after they meet Melissa, because it's like, oh, you're you're a human being. Somebody somebody nice likes you, and I think that's part of what she gets to do too. Is she's 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 such a decent human being who clearly knows what she knows that she makes she takes somebody like Alan Grant, who is not I wouldn't call him a dick, but he's so focused on his job and he's very much he's very much he's very narrow minded that we get to we can see him as a good guy through her, and and I love the way I. I love the way she tries to get him in the car with the kids. That is one of my favorite little bits of the movie. That's a fun bit. And um, I, I agree that for the most part throughout the movie, she has a fairly thankless role. But, um, you know, we can go back to that scene between her and Hammond, which is, I also agree, it's one of the best scenes in the film. And she's got some of the best dialogue in it. But uh, I also love the moment where uh, she calls out Hammond about sexism and survival skills and then proceeds to go and... Uh, reboot the power all by herself, you know, with only Ian giving her vague directions on a, on a map over the, over a walkie talkie. Um, and, uh, you know, come face to face with a Raptor solo, which I don't think anyone else in the movie ever does. Um, except maybe Muldoon. Well, um, we all know what happened. To come face to we know what happens to him. <laughs> yeah. Well, to come face to face with a Raptor and she doesn't even have any weapons and survive. Um, speaks a lot to her character. So do we want to move on to the kids? I mean, we, we have to talk about Spielberg and child performances. He, ever since I think as early as Jaws, has known how to talk to children and to get something real and that, that doesn't feel for it. If you look at, at Jaws or Empire of the Sun with Christian Bale or as much as I despise Hook and I despise I Hook, the kids in it are all amazing. I mean, they're all great, especially the the kid that plays Jack, 
And I think it was uh, Mazzello had originally auditioned for the role in, of Jack and Hook and was determined to be too young, but both him and Ariana Richards are stunning in this, and they have an absolute mountain of work, whether it's you know working with something that isn't there or a puppet or these seasoned veterans. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, I think, I mean, obviously what helps i mean for child actors or, or adult actors is when you can make the experience as real as possible and so i think it was, I, I think i was listening to ariana richards talk about um seeing that t-rex for the first time just seeing it was was quite the experience and then getting to shoot all the stuff where the jeep flips over and you know everything to do with the t-rex kind of coming after them i mean I don't want I, I I'm by no means trying to take away what you just said, but I mean at that point I'm not even sure if you're if you're acting as much as just truly responding to the shit that's happening right in front of you. And to have somebody like Spielberg who you know, and the way that they, the way that the kids were talking about it too is, you know, he would he would kind of play games with them and then in the middle of it he would ask them a question about their character or, you know, what do they think about the scene coming up? And he found a way to kind of coax them into talking about it in under the sort of the guise of a game. And I think I think he he found I think that's what it was is he wasn't just like he didn't go to them just as actors he went to them as as kids and as people, and found a way to kind of coax it out of them without forcing it. Um, it's it's my that's how I'm guessing it. But yeah, I I agree. I think I think the, I think both of them are are great in the film. I think they get to they get to be honest kids in the movie. Well, I think the 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 strongest I I, I think the the strongest thing that we can say about Spielberg as a director when it comes to, to child actors is that uh, I, I learned this when I was watching a little EPK feature it on Warhorse uh, is that he doesn't have director or Steve or Spielberg on the back of his chair on his director's chair he's got dad on the back of his director's chair and, and and listening to the way that the kids talk about him you can really feel that he wants to be a fatherly figure to to the young actors on set and really not just talk down to them but to to make sure that it is a collaborative process and that they are getting, you know, their two cents in about their characters and the situations and things like that. Um, so we've got to, I mean, I know we, you kind of threw out uh, Attenborough and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to overlook him. Um, but I definitely want to spend a little time on Wayne Knight because I actually, Newman. I actually think he is, he's fucking perfect in this movie. And I, it's not that I forget that he's in it, but when we first really meet him and uh, he's, he's at that restaurant and he's, he's kind of, it's like that really funny, like shady deal going on when he's like, Dodson, Dodson, we got Dodson here. I just, I just find his brand of humor in the movie. Perfect. I think it's great. And I love the way that he, you know, it's, and it's, it's enough of a motivation. Like, I, I watched this with the subtitles on mostly because Stella was asking a lot of questions and I was taking notes and I wanted to be able to, if, if a good piece of dialogue came up, I wanted to be able to type it in. And I don't think I ever realized that he said the line, don't get cheap on me, Dodgson. That was Hammond's mistake. I don't think I've ever heard the second half of that line before. And I mean, I figured it was for money. Obviously he's, I mean, the, the guy says, well, off, you know, you get some now, some later, but I, I don't think I've ever heard that line before. And again, going back to what Ebert said about some of the character development in the story, I'm like, no, it's there. You might not like how fleshed out it is, but I think there's a lot of justifications in the script. Um, yeah, I actually, for many years, 
um, had not heard the second part of that line. Um, I think it wasn't until, you know, I had started watching it on DVD in the, uh, you know, roughly around our college years. So I was like, holy crap, that, uh, that adds a whole new dimension to his interactions with John. You know, and just a few scenes later. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. There definitely is a lot of tension between those two. Um. So I, I was just gonna say, I just, I also love the bit where he just tosses, he just rubs the shaving cream off onto the pie, right next to him. It's like, I mean, that that to me is just a little detail that tells you exactly who this guy is. Like he just doesn't care about you. Oh, his giddiness about this whole spy CIA James Bond thing is one of my favorite things in the movie. I also oh yeah the, the squeak the yeah squeak. I also think Perfect. it's great that this movie this movie does have two uh, people whose demise I think are both uh, needed and kind of awesome like and it sounds it sounds terrible to relish in somebody's death but we have we do have we have him who's obviously you know he shut down the power he really is the reason why this is all happening the way that it is and then we have Gennaro who who leaves the kids in the car. I actually, I, I want to put it out there. Who's, whose demise works better for you? Is it Gennaro or is it, is it Newman? I know I realize that's not his name in the movie, but I, I think it's, I think it's Nedry's demise. That is the most satisfying. It's also, I think the most horrific moment in the movie. Oh, it's, it's fucking vicious. Um, I would agree. It's the most horrific. Um, because, I don't know there's there's something and I, I wish they I wish they'd brought that the Dilophosaur back in future movies but that is the creepiest scene in the whole movie in a movie where you have Laura Dern running around in tight spaces with a raptor is this one little you know at first glance pretty cute looking dinosaur pretty friendly dinosaur that all of a sudden just you know hobs a, a lunk of acidic spit right in your eyes like I think that was the most scared I was seeing at the theater was that scene. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's genuinely horrifying. And then, yeah. And then the, the, the shot of the camera pulling back with the, the officers in the car with him. That's, I mean, we, we can talk, there are some, um, uh, some impossible things that happen in the movie that will bring on some, some errors that I, I want to talk about before we leave. Uh, our discussion about this film, but something about being trapped in a car with a, with a fucking dinosaur is yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty bad. I, I, I'm, I'm going to go with the lawyer though. I think the fact that he runs and I think the fact that I, I, that, that he gets, he gets eaten on the toilet. I'm much more, I, I'm, and I get that he, he kind of, he's kind of a caricature. I get he's fitting a specific role. He's there for the investors. I get it. But when, when that T-Rex, picks him up off the toilet and needs him. I'm like, yeah, fuck you, buddy. I don't, I, you suck. <laughs> He's also got a really cringeworthy moment that I didn't really pick up on until this go around, uh, where I'm really trying to pay attention to the dialogue is when they're sitting there in the Mr. DNA sequence. And then they pan over to inside the lab. He asks Hammond, are these, are these auto or right? He's trying to say like, uh, He's trying to ask if they're like autonomous, if they're like robots or something, and he asks him if they're auto erotica. What? 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 What is this piece of dialogue? What is this? I also like he gets the line, you know, you know, we can pay, they can make a pay two thousand, ten thousand, and they people will pay, and you know, Richard Adburton tries to no, no, this is the place where everybody can come, and I love his his response is, oh yeah, yeah, we'll we'll have a coupon day, and I'm like, you prick, 
get <laughs> you suck. Oh yeah, I, I think general yeah, his death I think is more satisfying. Um you, you just get that that overwhelming sense of relief. And it's it's just less horrifying. I think I think what makes Nedry's death more horrifying is it's in a confined space. Yeah, absolutely. Um if, if you're claustrophobic, but yeah, that the T Rex eating Gennaro is just and it's 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 almost comical just because it looks like um, again, going back to using animals, real life animals as the basis for their recordings. Like it looks like watching a dog pick up a chew toy. So it's 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 almost like you're just watching, you know, an animal be an animal, and not just being vicious for the sake of being vicious. So does that if that brings us to Hammond? Uh, my I I have a little piece of trivia about about Richard Attenborough in this role, which has almost nothing to do with the movie, but in August and September uh, of '92 when they were shooting this film. Uh, Hurricane Iniki hit uh, Hawaii where they were shooting it and of course the production were really great at helping with relief efforts and uh, I guess Richard Attenborough slept through the whole thing and uh, Spielberg asked well well, where were you what happened and he said my dear boy I slept through the blitz which I think is one of the most British things I've ever heard in my (laughs) life and I love it yeah I read that too I I don't know if I would have had a great way to bring that up, but I figured we I, you had to be the one to bring that up. So that that's perfect. That's great. Yeah, I mean, and I think I've said enough about how, how much of a, a great sort of understated mad scientist he is in this film and how this film is really about hit, watching him not realize how much hubris he really does have and all of us getting to, to watch this sort of objectively and, and sort of plead with him in our own minds, please, you're, you're going down a path that you have no control of. Yeah. Well, and there's something, too, about him, again, that we, before we really see any of that, like, he just seems like a jolly old Santa Claus. He comes in and he, he pops open the champagne and he's, I, I like the way that he's so confident about what he's got to offer them that they're going to accept it not in a in a i don't find it in a in a arrogant way at all i think he just knows like he knows the park he has he knows who he's talking to and he he knows that this is going to get them there and i just i and the way he when he first sees his grandkids the way he's excited about it like it's so funny and it goes back to the that just because you could doesn't mean that you should but he's I think he's he's not seeing the forest for the trees, right? He could see the grand he could he sees the end result, but I don't think he's really he's really soaking up the how it's going to happen and obviously the the movie is sort of that uh on a on a terrible scale, but I agree. I think the 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 non-maniacal mad scientist I think is kind of yeah, I think that's a great Hammond. While we're earlier in the episode, we were hypothesizing what the film would look like with other actors or other directors. So Sean Connery originally turned down this role. How do we how do we feel about this movie with Sean Connery instead of Richard Attenborough? Uh, again, this kind of goes back to the Kurt Russell thing. Like I imagine Connery in the '80s and the early '90s as an action star. Like I cannot see. I I I can't think of any movie in which Sean Connery you know, as a character as a child outside of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And even then, he's playing sort of an older iteration of James Bond in that film. Too much of a playboy, right? I just, I don't, yeah. Again, I just can't see Connery doing it. I think, and I think he's too gruff. He doesn't have that, you know, grandfatherly feel to him. Well, that, yeah, that and, and I don't know how to, how to say this, but I don't, and I, I get that um, Hammond as a character is more of a, a money guy. 
he's not he's not really in the lab doing the the science part of it but there's something about there's something about sean connery that doesn't read as intelligent enough to have that be an idea of his i just don't i don't i don't buy it yeah i'm glad i'm glad that didn't work out the way that it i'm glad i'm glad it worked out the way it did there we go yeah, no, I I love Attenborough in this film, and I also am really grateful that they reworked uh, his his original, I guess, demise in the script was it's the same way that Peter Stormare gets killed in the second film, where he gets eaten by the those tiny little raptor things and just gets pulled apart, you know, death by a thousand cuts sort of thing. And uh, I think uh, I think that would have done uh, a disservice not only to the character, but the story that Hammond needs to survive through this. He needs to see just how much devastation he's caused and you it's it's all there in his face when sam neil grabs him and, and gets him into the helicopter at the end and that that silence that again one of my other little favorite details is the ending there's no dialogue it's just them and us in the chopper having to 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 think about what it is we've lived through well uh, i think it's actually in the book it's been several years since i've read the book um, I think that's actually is how he dies in the book. In the book, I, as I recall, he is not a very sympathetic character. Um, he was much he was much more of a jerk to his grandkids, as I recall. Again, it's been oh, it's been probably twenty years since I've read the book. Um, but well, that yeah, his death was much more. His death was definitely, I think, deserving in the book. But yeah, no, they they really made him. Yeah, I, I think that. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of a Frankenstein story, except that, you know, he actually gets to see the error of his ways in a different light. That's that's interesting um, about him, how he is in the book. And I wonder if maybe that's where the idea for Connery came from, because I could see Connery. Yeah, I think I think you could get away with that ending with Connery, but not so much with him, with uh, David, with Richard Attenborough. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. I, in a way, I feel like the a person that we really haven't talked about that much at all throughout the episode is uh, Spielberg, and um, I, I don't I don't want to uh, cut us off, but I, I feel like you know um, talking about maybe some of the the more iconic shots or or uh, the way that the camera was used in this movie. I figured we could talk a, a little bit about before we uh, we kind of get to some some final thoughts about the film. Well, his his idea to rework the ending, I think, is is one of his biggest strengths. The original ending, while they're all up there, the idea is that you have them clinging onto the the pieces of the the fossil and uh, of the bones and things like that, and then one of the ribs comes through and impales the Velociraptor. I mean, it's a it's a poetic ending, but I don't think it's it doesn't have the oomph of the the big hero shot at the end and that cheeky little moment where the banner falls down you know, when dinosaurs ruled the earth and now we're led to believe that they could possibly do so again. Um, oh yeah. Um, I definitely agree on the last shot. I, there's honestly, there's too many shots. Uh, nope. You know what? For me, the perfect shot has got to be, uh, when Timmy's looking up and you just see the T-Rex claw grabbing at the fence. And at that moment, you know, um, one, the fence is off, but more importantly, the T-Rex knows that it's off. And then you pull up even further, and then you just see the goat getting swallowed. It was a nice little detail. And that was, I think, the best, you know, the best introduction to a dinosaur in the whole film. 
probably. Yeah the the whole the whole scene where the T Rex comes out for the first time and and the the, the flashlights on and uh, when eventually when it gets flipped over and I mean the, everything there was great. Um, I do and I you mentioned detail and I really liked. I mean I I, I it's these shots are so iconic, so I don't want to give them that much time, but it's, it's watching the water ripple in the cup. It's the shot of the, as they're driving away, the objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. And we see that's where the T-Rex is kind of honing in on, on, you know, Malcolm and, uh, and Ellie driving away. There are just, and, and yeah, the, the, the whole watching the banner float through at the end there. I mean, those are all great little details and the shots themselves are fine, but it's, it's, it's it's the storytelling that we get because of what we're seeing on the screen. I think that really it helps. It helps advance the story. It's not, I don't. It's not just cute and cheeky and fun. I think it actually helps with the storytelling. Yeah, and that's all to to Spielberg and and his cinematographer Dean Cundey's. Uh, it's it's to their strength. Uh, I think it's easy to shit on Spielberg as a filmmaker because it's easy to. To, to rail against the people that are the most successful. I mean, the, between this and E.T., he, he is the wealthiest, you know, director in film history. I mean, he made something like $250 million off of this movie. But when you stop to think about how he considers composition, it's like what we talked about with, with David Fincher in our, in our big episode that took a look at all of his filmography, is that you know when you're watching a Spielberg movie. Yeah, agree. He he's got an eye like no one else, and his determination goes all the way back to the the late sixties, early seventies, when he was declared to be Sid Sheinberg's folly. This kid that just kind of muscled his way into Hollywood, found an empty office, and just faked it till he made it. Yeah. Um. So I I I have to bring up two. I, I errors, gaffes. I mean, whatever whatever you want to call them. Uh, the first has to do with um the the scene where the t-rex has basically forced um alan and um uh, pardon me for a sec alan and lexi over the side of the railing as the the as the one jeep is about to be dropped over it um and and that and this 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 error or what i think is an error comes in later when eventually ellie looks over the railing and sees the it sees the Jeep and yet is able to get down there very easily. But moments before we saw the T-Rex coming through that side. So I'm wondering where the hell this cliff came from. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I was actually thinking about that last night and I would really have to just, just take, take an hour to watch every shot in that scene to try and figure out, yeah, where, where does it come from? Because obviously Obviously, the Rex got over the fence somehow, and it can't have climbed the wall. Its arms are too short. <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I don't. I, I don't. I don't quite understand where the T Rex comes from. It's either where does the T Rex come from, or where the hell does that cliff come from? I, I'm. I'm befuddled by that moment. Yeah, there's a pretty big error in geography there. <laughs> but the other one. The other one is where the fuck does the T-Rex come from at the end of the movie? How does he slink into the building unnoticed by anybody to eat the raptor before it hurts anybody else? You know, in the in the making of stuff, I think the uh, it was the production designer who was sort of railing against that. It's like, how, how the shit am I supposed to get this guy in the building? 
but it's one of those things, I guess, if you want your big hero shot, you just kind of got to go with it. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you see it, you see a big hole in the wall, but again, it's like, where did that hole come from? Did the T-Rex crash through it? If that is part of the construction, why didn't they foreshadow it earlier? Well, and it's, I mean, and I'd love to hear, you know, maybe, maybe, yeah, because the T-Rex barged in or whatever, but the fact that it's unknown, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where the fact that it, it's great and it, and, and calling it a hero shot, Ian, is perfect because that's exactly what it is, that the T-Rex comes and saves the day, but I, it's really, it's really hard to get past where that T-Rex came from and that the four or five people in there didn't notice a giant dinosaur just hanging off just like 15 feet away. It It's, it's, it's in any other movie, I think it'd be unforgivable, but it's like, it's, it's for the purposes of this, I like to bring it up. I think it's a funny thing, but ultimately it doesn't, it doesn't hinder my enjoyment of the film at all. Nope. Nope. Same. Um, just because it leads right into that, that perfect shot. <laughs> yep. Um, so I guess the, the, so honestly, hand to God, last thing that I want to bring up because I know it's come up before with Ian. So I want to ask both of you, how does this John Williams score work for you? Ben, Ben, I want you to go first. Uh, yeah, I, I love this score. It's, I mean, it's absolutely vintage John Williams, but I appreciate it more than a lot of the uh, iconic scores he's been come to know for over the last like 10 or 15 years. Um, namely because I think the Harry Potter score sounds a little too much like star Wars. Um, and I think Jurassic park actually does enough to stand on its own and not feel like star Wars or, or uh, jaws or close encounters. Um, it, it's definitely, I mean, I mean, how can, how can you just, I, you know, Da, 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 da. I mean, like, I don't think anything quite as epic has uh, been composed for, you know, a blockbuster since. I think it, I still think it's the best blockbuster score we've had in our lifetime. Yeah, I like that. Ian? Well, I wish I had grabbed the name of the guy that composed uh, the score for Lawrence of Arabia, because for me, even though this isn't my favorite John Williams score, I think that still goes to uh, Oliver Stone's JFK. This this is his Lawrence of Arabia, and yes, it's big, and yes, it's bombastic, and maybe you could argue but it, that, that it tells you how to feel and when to feel it, but I don't give a shit. I love this score. I get swept up, and usually I don't have the time for nostalgia. <laughs> I, I hate that there are so many... Uh, movies that are in the book mostly for nostalgic reasons, including the one we talked about last yeah. week, Tootsie, but I I just don't care. I love it. No, and that's fair. And I, I it does. It, it it really it works on me in all the right ways. And I do think, you know, a a good score should also go unnoticed. And it's not that it doesn't I mean I obviously notice when it happens, but it's also like it, it I, I get so swept up in it would be one thing if the score was so bombastic and yet it didn't match what we were seeing. But like when we, when we see the dinosaurs for the first time, everything is working in tandem together so well. And I think that I think that's why it, it's not unnoticed, but it's just like, I'm looking at a dinosaur. The music just happens to be there, but it's, it's all a part of the same thing. It's, it's not like I'm, I'm being overwhelmed by one or the other. Um, but yeah, so great. 
Well, our sense of wonder and amazement is already so elevated that I think he could have gone as big as he wanted to and gotten away with it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Um, and I also, I also feel great that Spielberg uh, talked about how you know working in Poland shooting Schindler's List is one of the most draining and and horrific things he's ever done. But the fact that he had John Williams' score on cassette to get him to you know back and forth from from the set every day is is great knowing that he had that to to keep his spirits lifted yeah absolutely so i i have said my bits about jurassic park i don't want to cut off so if there's uh, any any last thoughts that you guys want to bring up i would love to hear them well i'm going to make i think a, a some might call this a bold statement but i really do believe that um jurassic park is the most iconic blockbuster of its decade. Um, yes, Titanic was more successful, but as I've said before, here we are 27 years later. So much of this movie is now uh, a meme on the internet. Um, and unlike Titanic, it's managed to spawn four sequels coming up on five, you know, next year. Um, and even though those sequels can't hold up to the first one, the fact of the matter is this this series continues based entirely upon the goodwill established in that first movie. Even if Jurassic World was, you know, the most successful film at the box office back in 2015, it doesn't matter. Um, honestly, without the first one, there wouldn't be a Jurassic World 2. So, um, and I, I just, I can't think of any other, like, big big summer blockbuster from the 90s that is iconic i mean the next closest thing i think would be independence day or men in black and then you've got movies like um the phantom menace or the matrix but those are 99 and those i think seep way more into 21st century consciousness than than the 90s so honestly yeah i mean what what film out there what big big film out there is more iconic than jurassic park for the 90s I, I just can't think of one. And, and it's great that you brought up Phantom Menace as well, because without Jurassic Park, uh, we wouldn't, as for take them for what you will, we wouldn't have that prequel trilogy, because it was after seeing this that Lucas went, okay, the technology is finally here that I can continue. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and yeah, I mean, without, without you know, hopping on Box Office Mojo and really doing really doing the look, I, I, the, th the films that came to my mind were Independence Day and Titanic. And, I mean, and while those are big films in their own right, I, there is something about Jurassic Park that really it kind of hits all of those boxes like it's a movie that everybody likes I do think that Titanic and Independence Day can sort of skew and be kind of geared more towards uh, more specific audiences but Jurassic Park to me really feels like it's for everybody and in a way like Top Gun like people's interest in paleontology went up substantially after this movie came out so i mean again it really did have a huge impact on the culture at large i think it's a, i think that's a great point ian what about you i i think that's a i think those are great thoughts to go out on perfect uh well then we're, i think we're there i think we're at the the point in the episode where we get to ask the the question that we've been driving at so ben do you think that jurassic park should be in the book well i'd be a fool to say no yeah, it, it absolutely should be. <laughs> Ian, what about you? Yes, it definitely 
certainly does, and again, not not for the wave of nostalgia that it inspires in me, but because it is a strong visually and emotionally, despite what Roger yeah, Ebert said at the time. More. This film absolutely deserves to be in the book for all of the right reasons, and um, uh, yeah, nostalgia aside, you just got to appreciate the craft and care that went into the making of this movie. Uh, so there you have it. Those are three yeses, a total confirmation that Jurassic Park should be in the book. But as always, we want to know what you think. So please find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Hit us up. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, many more, I'm sure. You can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one. Ben, we want to thank you again so much for being on the show. Um uh, I we did I didn't mention this between the two of you, but uh, Ian Ben is also a big horror guy, so maybe whenever we get to um, our uh, our Hammer Dracula film, we might be able to get, to bring Ben back on. Oh, you gotta be kidding me! Yeah. Are you are you a big Hammer fan then? Uh, I've seen uh, I've seen all the Christopher Lee Draculas. I've seen almost all the Peter Cushing Frankenstein's. I've got um, most of the Scream Factory Blu-rays. Oh, Ben, you are a man after my own heart. Yep. So uh, we probably haven't seen the last of Ben Stahl on this show, which is great. Um, And coming up next week, we are going to talk about Steven Spielberg in the 2000s. We are going to rank the, is it seven films? Yeah, everything from AI to, unfortunately, Crystal Skull. Which uh, I'm looking forward to. There's a couple in there I haven't seen. Ben is shaking his head. I'm sure he's got some thoughts about Crystal Skull there. Which is great, and I'm looking forward to it very much. So um, uh, next week we will continue talking about Spielberg. But until then, I am Adam. And I am Ian. And we will see you next week. Next week.